1: banking services provided by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
2: Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller.
3: Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts
2: and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. The news over the last uh, cycle here 24 hours has been former President Donald Trump indicted um, in New York um, and that is a developing story we want to get some perspective on that and the first call we put out was to Tim O'Brien. He's a senior senior executive editor for Bloomberg Opinion. He's been doing that since 2013, I think. Before that, he was at the Huffington Post, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal. My takeaway from all of that is the guy has a hard time keeping a job, but he's done a pretty good <laughs> job here at Bloomberg. He wrote a book back in the day, Trump Nation, The Art of Being the Donald in 2005, and that is the definitive biography of Donald Trump. He got sued by the former president and all that, but he won. And if he wants to talk about it, he can. But Tim, what do you make of the news about the New York indictment? What's your initial uh, read?
4: Well, well, Paul, the first thing I'm going to say is the reason I have a hard time keeping a job is because of mean colleagues like you. Always exactly.
3: <laughs> <now>. No support. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
4: Um, I think we don't know, right? I, I, I think this is one of the moments in which everyone wants to opine and, and analyze and I I think until we actually see the indictment itself, it's under seal. I imagine it will get unsealed Monday or Tuesday. Trump is likely to be arraigned on Tuesday, but that's not completely written in the stone either. Um, I've written before that I think that Alvin Bragg's case is is relatively flimsy relative to some of the other investigations and prosecutions that are ongoing. Um, I don't know that this was the best case you would want to bring to him, uh, bring out of that office at this point in time against a former president um, but he's chosen to do so and and Donald Trump has spent decades weaponizing the law law and avoiding any accountability in courtrooms and at a minimum that that's been pierced. you know he's going to be indicted for the first time. Uh, he's the first president to be indicted, but I think in his own narrow world, it's also the first time he's been indicted. And um, uh, he's going to react against that in, in strident ways. Let me,
3: let me ask uh, uh, Tim, Matt Miller here, by the way, thanks for joining us. Let me let me ask about Alvin Bragg, because um, I thought Bragg was uh, less likely to indict Trump. In fact, I thought a couple of the people in his office wanted to indict Trump previously and quit, um, because they were so angry that they weren't able to, stopped by their boss, Alvin Bragg. So,
5: what's so, so, the deal so with this remember guy?
4: The con- remember the context of that. So, Alvin Bragg inherits a case built by SyVance. And SyVance's own prosecutors were very split around whether or not they had enough evidence to, to take to court on a criminal charge. Remember, a criminal charge, the standard is. You, the, the, you have to prove intent on the part of the perpetrator. It's a very high bar. And I think the people in, in Cy Vance's office were very split down the middle on this, around whether or not they had the mojo to take it to court. Vance basically leaves, dumps this on Bragg's desk without resolving it. Bragg comes in, he looks at it, he decides um, that there's too much division here. We can't bring this particular case involving you know, I think years and years of, of, of financial fraud um, allegation. Uh, but he goes down a new path based on other evidence he has involving the payments to Stormy Daniels and bookkeeping fraud attendant to that. That's as we know that that's one thing he's looked at. Here's the caveat on that. There's been reporting out there that say there may be more than 30 counts in this indictment. Mm. He could well have assembled other evidence well beyond the Stormy Daniels thing. I think for this case to have gravitas and traction, it needs to have actually mm. much more than that.
3: Well, this it. is this reminds me of, uh, you know, when Merrick Garland had the feds raid Mar-a-Lago. Um, we all thought, man, in order to do that, he must have something serious. Yep. But it so far it doesn't look like he has anything serious.
4: Well, wait a minute, you, you, you know. We have to let the legal system work through these things. The Mar-a-Lago incident is very serious. Federal authorities believe he violated the Espionage Act, potentially. There are classified documents that he took down there without... Uh, handling it in proper ways that any president, regardless of party or persuasion, should observe.
3: Well, and that is I mean, we still, have a president in office right now who let's still, the same let the Don't
4: interrupt me, Matt. I know you're prone to do that, but I'm your guest, so hear me out. Uh, uh, the, the legal system is there as a process to protect all of us, regardless of party. It can be flawed, it can be inexact, but it is there for a reason, and there's very good reasons the Mar-a-Lago incident is being examined, and it should be, regardless who was in the in the White House, and we don't know what they have yet, so we have to be patient with this, so it can get properly aired publicly, and and I think that's true of all of these
3: cases. Patience is not my one of my virtues. I know that. <laughs> I know that. <laughs> so, Tim,
2: help us put into context. I mean, we have the the New York City issue, and we'll get more clarity on it next week when it's unsealed. Help us frame out the other risks for. Uh, the former president, in terms of this uh, federal investigation as well as the investigation in Georgia? Because those seems to seem to be, on the first read, more serious and perhaps more of a problem uh, for I, Mr. Trump.
4: I don't know that they are. I honestly think, I, you know, there's a civil case in New York, New York AG. She's a Democrat. That one could, it's a civil case. It could result in a serious financial penalty. It could put him out of business in New York. It's not going to put him in, in prison, it's not going to prevent him from running for the president for the presidency. In Georgia, there's a criminal case there by the Fulton County District Attorney, Fonnie Willis, that involves voting fraud. That is also unlikely to put him in jail. It also won't prevent him from running for president. Eugene Debs ran for president as a socialist from jail about 100 years ago. Lyndon LaRouche, a serial tax dodger, ran. For the, for, presidency, for the presidency a number of times, even though you've been convicted of tax fraud. Crimes don't keep you out of the office. What keeps you out of the office is if you've led an insurrection. The 14th Amendment specifically points at insurrection as a disqualifying factor. It was instituted after the Civil War to prevent Confederate seditionists from running for office. That's, that's in the DOJ case with the January 6th prosecution. In my mind, mar-a-lago case and the the january 6th case those investigations are the only things that's going to keep him out of office and potentially and even they may not so for for, i think for people who have an emotional investment in the outcome of these that they think ultimately these are the only things that are going to stop donald trump from inhabiting the white house that's a slender threat the only thing that keeps trump out of the white house ultimately i think are voters so by the way i I just want to
3: point out we were talking this morning, and I'm sure a lot of people will will, uh, will talk about this. Tim, you probably already know about it. I thought Trump would be the, would have been the first president ever arrested after office. And some reports have surfaced that Ulysses S. Grant had been arrested for speeding in the late 1800s on a horse. <laughs>
4: what, speeding on a horse? Yes, yeah. exactly.
3: <laughs> I find it incredibly hard to believe. That's a good story, though. Um,
2: Tim, what do you think this—how do you think the other— I don't know, Republican potential nominees, how do you think they're going to position themselves here? Are they going to just maybe lay low and let it play out?
4: I think it's tricky. You know, I think Pence came out and defended uh, Trump. DeSantis has. I think the tricky thing in terms of the politics of this is that Donald Trump has a very firm hold on about 30% of the Republican Party. It makes him an important factor in the primary races. He has, I think, fatally turned off independents moderate Republicans and moderate Democrats, like the sort of middle middle tier of voters, I think, now know who he is, and it, and, it, and it hobbles him as a national candidate. So the party is kind of held hostage to getting new people out on the stage who can get through the primary process without being kneecapped by Trump, while still being viable national candidates. And I think each of those individuals. Pence, DeSantis, Haley, they're all trying to navigate around that. I think they don't want to be uh, appearing to be exactly in the same boat as Trump or supporting some of his, you know, some of his greater obscenities. On the other hand, they also know that they need his voters. So it's a tricky balance, I think.
2: Hey, Tim, just about 20, 30 seconds. Is a Trump voter, can a Trump voter be a DeSantis voter supporter or a Haley supporter? Yeah. They can?
4: I think so. I mean, I think I think they can. I think that I think that I just don't think enough. I don't think you can. I don't think DeSantis or Haley can win only with Trump voters. Yeah, I think they need Trump voters plus moderates. And how do you thread that needle? It's like watching a hostage video.
2: Yeah. Yeah. All right, Tim. Thanks so much for taking the time. We really wanted to get your uh, perspective and opinion here. Uh, Tim O'Brien, he's a senior executive editor for Bloomberg Opinion. Again, uh, he wrote Trump Nation, the art of being the Donald in 2005. It was defined. It was described as the definitive biography of Donald Trump. So he has a lot of personal experience reporting on President Trump. We're going to have more coming up. This is Bloomberg.
6: You're listening to The team. our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Some latest reporting on this
2: Trump indictment that hit uh, the tape late afternoon yesterday. Anne Marie Hordern, Washington correspondent with Bloomberg Television, and Bloomberg Law host June Grasso. uh, They join us here both in studio. We appreciate that. They both get the uh, coveted gold star for being in studio. so, June, I want to start with you. From a legal perspective, is this a good case?
7: Well, first let me say that we do not know exactly what the case is yet. Okay. This is all speculation because the grand jury indictment is still under seal. If what we think it is is actually what it is, then it's a novel case. I mean, weak or strong, it's, it's different. It's okay. never been done before. It's Why taken is it a missed it's okay. taking a misdemeanor, which is the falsifying of business records, and do and in order to make it a, a felony. I mean, they're not, they don't want to bring a mis. People are complaining that they're even bringing this case. They don't want to bring a misdemeanor against the president, so former president. And so you take the falsifying business records, and you have to show that that Trump also had an intent to defraud, that in, included an intent to commit. We're thinking a second crime of election campaign finance violations. I mean, that's what we're thinking. So you're taking two, you're taking a felony and a misdemeanor and hooking them together. And it's it hasn't been done by New York prosecutors. I don't know if it's done, been done by anyone, anyone. So there's a chance that I don't think a judge would dismiss it before it went to trial because you want to get the jury verdict and a judge is not going to be the one that wants to say that people say, I threw that out against Donald right. Trump. So but after on appeal, I mean, an appellate court could reverse.
2: Okay, so Anne Marie, from the political perspective here, again, the first time a former president has been indicted. What's the feeling in Washington? What's the feeling about and the Andy- first
3: time Trump's been indicted? Uh, and the first time Trump's, been
2: which yes. that's I think more right. shocking. Right. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, well, what's the feeling from
8: Washington? Well, he's not just a former president; he's also a candidate, right, on the Republican Party to be their front runner, and he's. Right now, he is their frontrunner. He's winning in all their polls for 2024. So what you can imagine is that for Washington, this is just hardening those political divides. Um, the one place you will not see a comment from is the White House. President Biden left this morning to go to Mississippi, and he was asked repeatedly, yep, do you have that. a comment, Asking anything about the indictment? Any thoughts at all, I'm not gonna comment on that. I'm not gonna comment on that. The Republicans in Congress, though, there's talk of them even sending out a subpoena to Alvin Bragg Hmm. because they think that this is, uh, well, they're calling it outrageous. So this is not going away, but we should also note, and this is something um, that potentially can coalesce around the president in the next few months, is this is only one of a number of cases that The former president is under investigation for, and
3: looks like right now, from what we know, and as June points out, we don't yet know what the the actual. Yeah, it's under seal. Looks like the weakest and least important of any, right? I mean, you've got um, a a much more important case. It seems in Georgia, you've got a much more serious civil case here in New York. You've got uh, a a serious federal case. Federal
8: cases. Yeah, but
7: the prosecutor can't look at what other prosecutors are doing he's got his own grand jury that he called what is he supposed to say okay grand jury go home for a year come (laughs) back wish you can anyway go home and come back and we'll you know after georgia indicts then we'll indict he's on his own track and he has other problems to think about he has statute of limitations problems and all kinds of things to think about i mean i do admit you know, Mark Pomerantz, who was a former prosecutor there who made a big deal about... He wanted Brad to indict Trump. Right. He called this case the zombie case. He said it's been called the zombie case because it's been dead and then revived so many times. So obviously you know if it's been dead and then revived that it's not the strongest of cases. So, but you've got to but do... But it sounds resilient. Zombies it, exactly, are resilient. Exactly, exactly. By the yeah, way, do June, you watch does, that? This is us? Does, <laughs> yes, yeah.
3: The, the Last of Us. That was the la- oh, sorry, The Last uh, of us. Did you... I mean, you've heard the uh, the criticisms from Republicans that this is, you know, uh, per- a personal even, um, that it's a witch hunt. Obviously, that's the term that they've used since before he was even elected the first time. But uh, it, it, does Alvin Bragg have some kind of personal vendetta or issue I, with Donald Trump that we've seen any hint of no. previously?
7: No. I mean, he did have, have a case against him when he was in the <sighs> attorney general's office. But he wasn't one of the people who ran on, I'm going to prosecute Trump. He didn't. He would say, "I can't really talk about that in case the case comes before me." That old line. So, I mean, there's no end. And he's also a very careful man. He's a very known as a careful prosecutor who'll go over things and over things. So. I have to believe that if he's bringing this case, he thinks he can get a conviction. I mean, he's pretty sure of himself, because I don't think you'd bring a case like this unless you're sure that you can get a conviction. And remember, he was the one that initially decided
8: in February of 2022 not to pursue an indictment.
3: Yeah, well, I I, I mean, this reminds me to some extent of the Mar-a-Lago raid, which... We said at the time like wow you can't raid the ex president's house. We also
7: said that it wasn't a raid because it, it was it had a subpoena to get well, there. Well,
3: only people who were divorced from reality but said. But they only needed you know. a
7: subpoena
8: because uh, they wouldn't turn over these highly classified documents. I
3: just everyone was waiting to see a smoking gun from Merrick Garland and we haven't Well, no, seen
8: there's yet. a special counsel. This is being investigated yeah. on a federal the spe-
7: level. The special counsel is has been serving subpoenas on people he's gotten he's gotten Trump's lawyer to testify about attorney-client privilege by using the crime fraud exception that tells you that a judge thinks there's a crime there otherwise you don't have the crime fraud exception right yep. he's got all these pieces got Mark Meadows coming in His vice he's president moving. Mike Pence Mike Pence he also had a he also just won this week his case against Mike Pence, forcing him to come in to testify, but leaving a few things out because of the So when all the
2: ball's in the air, guys, do we have any sense of timing for the federal case, the the Georgia? Is, is this measured in weeks, months,
7: maybe even more? Yeah, more, more. Oh, okay. But f- first of all, you know, we don't know yet when Georgia... That investigation has been going on longer than any other, and a special grand jury came back with its recommendations. And she still, as far as I know, has not called another grand jury to indict. The you know the special counsel. Who knows how long that'll take? But in this case, the last trial against Trump took 18 months, I think, to get to trial, and that was the tax fraud case. So who knows how long this will take to get to well, trial? Well, hopefully,
3: it gets dealt before November 2024, right?
7: Well that would
8: be ideal, but to June's point, that's we don't know that. This stuff takes a very long time. Um, also, it doesn't matter. I mean, in our history, American history, we had Eugene Debs who campaigned and ran for president when he was in jail on the Socialist Party in the 1920s. <laughs> okay. This yep. No, what I'm saying is even if the pres even if the president is going through this Maybe his party will want to say, we don't want to deal with this drama. We're going to choose another candidate, but he could still run for president.
3: True, unless um, he gets busted for inciting an insurrection.
8: Right. I'm talking so that does specifically matter. about the New York case.
3: Oh, we're, we're, I'm talking about the other cases, the big ones, you know, Georgia well, the, this, and, then this and could the federal case. Yeah. him
8: from holding federal office, 100%. Um, so,
3: and, and, and it's unlikely now that he lacks support from his party, right? Because- Complete
8: opposite. What you are seeing is the base is coming out. They are donating. He is campaigning off of this. Since he said, I will be arrested, he has been sending out campaign letters. He has been talking about it. You saw his rally in Waco, Texas saying, I am the one that is a victim here. I need your support. Look at what these Democrats are doing. And he's forcing every Republican to make a decision on who they stand by. So not only are you going to see the hardening of politics between Democrats and Republicans, I think you'll see a hardening of politics within the Republican Party. Those that say we need to lean into him and support the former president, those that say he didn't win us the midterm elections, he didn't win the last election, it's time we move on to a new leader.
7: When does it get tiring, the witch hunt thing, I'm a victim? I can't can't believe he's still able to raise money on that. He's been saying that for how many years? Before he became a president.
2: So, I mean... It'd be interesting to see how this shakes out, and marie from, from the Washington perspective. How aggressive do you think the Republicans in Congress will get here?
7: Well, they'll be incredibly
8: aggressive. We already, before the former president was indicted, you had Jim Jordan, you had James Comer. They're coming out, sending letters to Alvin Bragg. They want him to come to DC. They want a hearing about this. But it's, it's a hearing to nowhere, right? The Republicans only hold the House. Yep. All of this is going to be posturing. And it does remove a lot of oxygen in the room for some other big issues they're supposed to be tackling. Sure.
7: I, I just have to say one thing. I can't imagine Alvin Bragg res- going to Washington yeah, to appear a gonna committee. <laughs> they, they want information on a grand jury that's secret. And they want information on the, what the prosecutor's office is doing before a trial. Right. That's not going to
1: happen. In- yeah, Posturing.
2: Yeah, exactly. Posturing is that, a word. That, All right, guys. That's, that's Annemarie that. Hordern, uh, June Grasso, both from uh, Bloomberg News and Bloomberg Television, bring us the latest here.
6: You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130.
2: Uh, take a look again at this story of President Trump being, former President Trump being indicted uh, by uh, New York. Um, And what it really means for the political landscape, not just for uh, Mr. Trump, but also uh, for just the general presidential election coming up in 2024. We can do that today with the director of the Center for American Politics and Policy for Brown University. uh, Professor Wendy Schiller joins us. Uh, Professor, thanks so much for taking the time here. I mean, just, you know, incredible news broke yesterday about uh, the indictment from New York. What do you think the political implications are for let's just start first for the former president
9: well, I mean he's he'll get a lot of attention. Trump loves attention, uh, and he will be able to shore up his um support within the party. He's already asking for small level donations like twenty four twenty five dollars or something. I think he's doing twenty four dollars for twenty twenty four for his defense. So it'll be a short term boost for him. And if uh, people like Ron DeSantis or Tim Scott or Nikki Haley's already in the race, but Mike Pompeo, anybody else who's thinking of running, if they wait too long, he'll just soak up all of that momentum, energy and oxygen. Um, and he may actually gain a lead that might be hard to surmount, even though voting hasn't even begun in the primers.
3: Does this case, Wendy, matter to potential Trump voters? I mean, even uh, Republicans who don't necessarily support him all the time. Do they care if he paid hush money to a former porn star?
9: I'm not sure it's the nature of the accusations as the fact that the door is now open to indict him for other things that I think they do care about, like interfering with the election results in Georgia or uh, promoting violence on January 6th. I mean, I think that's the big question mark here. The political jeopardy for Donald Trump is not necessarily in this indictment. It's the fact that um, he is indicted at all and that the you know, Manhattan D.A. has taken this step means that other district attorneys or the United States Justice Department could feel a little bit more comfortable uh, indicting a former president since they won't be the first ones now.
2: All right. So let's say you're Ron DeSantis or any of the other Mr. Mike Pence, any of the other folks, uh, Nikki Haley, Nikki Haley, thank you, that may be considering running against uh, former President Trump how do you think they should play it or how do you think they will play it?
9: Well, you know, there's a real big gulf. I mean, it's a really great question. There's a big gulf between how the potential presidential candidate should play and how the House of Representatives Republicans are going to have to play it because, you know, you can get in, get out, and you can say, well, maybe it doesn't go his way, or you, you can't give him all that, you know, it's it's just going to cloud everything else. Is going to be the Trump story. You can't give him all that press all the time. You just will never get any momentum. Nikki Haley already announced, essentially, uh, and we're still treating her as a maybe. So I think this is the big dilemma for them, and if you're Ron DeSantis and your argument is that, well, I have to wait till the Florida legislature goes out, I think that's the end of April, if I'm not mistaken, um, you know, that's a whole month away. That's, you know, you're leaving a month full of a press hole for Donald Trump. Uh, And if you want to be president of the United States, you have to take a risk. You have to be willing to jump in and say, I support the former president, but I also think I'll be a good president. Pay attention to me.
3: Are there any Republicans who... Other than Liz Cheney, who say, I don't support the former president. I uh, I think he incited violence uh, at the Capitol uh, and uh, did a disservice to our democracy by um, doubting the 2020 election. Or are they all pretty much behind him? Because even Mike Pence, you know, even Mike Pence seems to still support Donald Trump um, after Trump essentially like put the knife in his back.
9: Well, I actually left him in an extraordinarily dangerous situation. I mean, not just, like, not just, you know, literally. Uh, uh, it's really, it's something to behold. I don't think we've ever seen a former president. Even Nixon, when he came back and won in 68, didn't have a hold on the party uh, in 64. So it's really, you just haven't seen this kind of hold. And for the House Republicans who just won, particularly in New York and California, for example, the newbies, they, they're worried about a primary. I mean, they're always worried about a primary, but they're really worried about a primary. And that primary challenge will come from an an avid Trump supporter. So the House Republicans have to be behind Donald Trump now for their own individual survival. That means McCarthy has to be behind him as Speaker because he can't stay Speaker if he doesn't keep the House. So it puts them in this bind. And then the party can't move forward. Um, And so they're, they're, they're really stuck. And unless somebody else is an alternative that you can say they believe everything Trump believes, but without the baggage, then there's nowhere for them to turn. And it, it's a, it's sort of almost a stalemate yep. within the Republican Party.
2: All right, Professor, I wa- we want to get the legal side of this right now. We could do that with a former federal prosecutor and former special counsel to Robert Mueller when he worked at the DOJ. Uh, that is Michael Zeldin. Uh, Michael, thanks so much for joining us here. What do you make of the legal case for? New York against uh, former President Trump here that was, I know it hasn't been unsealed, but what, what we know now?
10: Well, first, of course, as you just said, we have to wait for it to be unsealed to see exactly what he's charged with, because there's been a lot of speculation about that. But going with what's been available to us in the public record, it appears that he'll be charged with multiple counts of business record misstatements. That will be each time Trump org made a repayment to Michael Cohen as quote unquote a legal fee, about ten or twelve of those, those will be separate counts of business records violations. Then the question will be will they make that into that group of misdemeanors into a felony by saying all those payments were made for the purpose of evading federal election or state election violations because they were hiding them from the Federal Elections Commission, and therefore it's a felony. So that's what we're thinking will likely be the case, multiple business records cases, and then federal election um, felony on top of the business records.
3: Michael, what's what's the distinction here between state and federal? Because this is, you know, a New York um, DA and... Uh, I've heard a lot of people say, well, it's going to be hard to appeal it to a, a federal appeals court or uh, get it up to that level from here.
10: Well, it's not a matter of whether it's appealed or not appealed. The question is, the difficult legal question is, can you take a state violation, the business records, and turn it into a felony where the felony is a federal felony? Huh. If they if, if they have a state felony and they say the business records misstatements were made to further the state felony, then they're on solid ground. If they're saying it was to further a federal felony, then you have this tricky business of a state crime being enhanced by violating a federal law, and that has not been tested.
2: Uh, Professor Schiller, to the extent that these federal issues move forward, does that change the calculus, the political calculus for for Mr. Trump, for maybe presidential candidates, and maybe his support in Congress.
9: The political calculation, uh, Mr. Zeldin, is incredibly articulate, uh, and I was listening closely, but not everybody has the time to listen this closely. This is a complicated case, It's probably the most complicated indictment that might come down against the former president if we look at all the possible ranges of charges he faces in other cases. It's very hard to sell. It's very hard to explain. Republicans know that. Uh, and Democrats are just chomping at the bit to have this man held accountable whatever way they can. So they don't really care. What the what the nature of the case is, um, it matters. I think uh, also to know that it's unclear this would even prohibit him from running for office. Even if he gets convicted and serves time and comes out again, he may still be able to run for office. So I mean there are, there are all sorts of ways in which the real on the ground implications for most people are. You know did he did he lie? Did he break the law? What did he do? Or I just I can't stand him and I want to see him punished. Uh, and I think these are this is the political environment in which these messages are going to be sent out by both parties.
3: He does seem to be the te- Teflon Don. He does, uh, Michael Zeldin. Do you see um, in any of these cases in Georgia on the federal level any likelihood um, that Donald Trump is, you know, found guilty and, you know, not able to run for president because he claims he's a completely innocent person? Well, let's leave his claim aside for a second.
10: The only crime that would, in theory, bar him from running for president again is if he's convicted of seditious conspiracy in the january 6th case the florida case the georgia case this new york case none of them would bar him from running for office again he might if convicted as a felon not be able to vote but he can still run and so that's not really on the table except for a seditious um, conspiracy and you know whether he is able to capitalize this on political grounds, really remains to be seen because, as the professor indicated, there is a need, I think, in the Republican Party for them to move past Trump and his demagoguery. I don't think that is a sustainable general election party. But they're right now tethered to him and they are unwilling for short term benefit to individual members willing to move beyond that. So they're sacrificing the long-term health of their party for their individual short-term benefit, like Speaker McCarthy. Right. Uh, And that's, you know, their
2: choice. Yep, it is. All right, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Michael Zeldin, former federal prosecutor and former special counsel to Robert Mueller when he worked at the DOJ, and also to Professor Wendy Schiller. Uh, She is a director of the Center for American Politics and Policy for Brown University.
1: You know success when you see it, or you think you do.
6: Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern. On Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. We're going to go right to
2: our next guest, um, John Arthur. He's an opinion columnist for Bloomberg News, and you can probably tell he's not from these parts. He's <laughs> English. <laughs> he's not from around here. He's not from around here. But somehow <laughs> he's become a rabid. Red Sox fan. I have no idea how Ugh. that happened. But he's got a piece out today where he's going to tie in Moneyball, the opening of baseball season, to investing. I have no idea how he tried to do that. But, John, give us your thoughts here on Moneyball investing.
5: Okay, just, just first making sure you know that I do have a U.S. passport. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, but you live in also, New York. Why are you a Red Sox also, fan? <laughs> my first experience of this wonderful country was as an exchange student at a high school in Belmont, Mass., Okay, ah, that explains uh, it. And this is true. I, 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 I so I stayed with a family, and the the oldest brother was away at college, and I had his bedroom, and I slept my first night in this country underneath a signed photograph of Bobby Orr. So from that point onwards, I had no choice. I have been a hardcore Boston fan, even though I've never never picked up a Boston accent, which is uh, which I think we can all be grateful.
1: Yeah. Now, uh,
5: in terms of baseball. Um, Uh, basically the the rule changes that they've made uh, for this season are very interesting and I think they reflect uh, the way baseball has moved in its use of stats and data and that there's a very close parallel there with the way um, markets have moved that that, uh, quants and factor investors have steadily got ever more sophisticated uh, in their use of stats which has required everybody else get that much more sophisticated with the result that you uh you have um a market where it's very difficult for new entrants to have any success at all unless they've got some really powerful computers um which is not so dissimilar from the the baseball revolution of looking at the launch angle with which you hit the ball looking at uh uh you know measures for, for applying the shift and so on that that's that, Ruthlessly using stats to uh, to organize your your baseball team um, increases your chance of winning and makes it uh, a much worse spectacle and much harder for others to compete. So that was that's my basic comparison there. And
2: so, bringing it to investing, how does that work?
5: Which is much less interesting. Yes. Again, sure. <laughs> uh, so. Uh,
3: well, we don't have the same kind of rule changes, do we? I mean, uh, no. baseball started yesterday, and they got a 20-second shot clock, essentially, pitch clock. Yeah. Uh, you can only, what, you can only try and pick off a runner twice. Um, yes. Uh, the, and the apparently, the, ba- bigger, yeah, the bases are um, bigger. 14th yes, and, and inning, you get a runner on base if you get out that far on second base. Um, yeah, and
5: that, that's I have a bit of a problem with it, but then I'm a, I'm a purist. That seems like, gimmicky yeah. to me. Yes. Yeah. But the, um, I, I mean, the Red Sox managed to lose their first game of the season ten nine, and <laughs> even though there was that much scoring, it barely lasted more than three hours.
6: Right, um, which which That's is
5: awesome. indicative of something you would normally expect a game. With if that only
3: soccer wins. would do about. something like that.
5: Well, <laughs> soccer was well, well, lasting more than ninety minutes or less than ninety minutes. anyway, okay. I thought you wanted to talk about investing. So, yes. so in terms of in terms of investing, yes, you're quite right. There is no. Um, there's no equivalent of Theo Epstein to come in and change the rules on you in investing. It's ultimately uh, the market. The way people uh, behave, the way they invest, the way they deploy funds changes the way the market behaves. But there is no opportunity to just change the rules. I think what what you have is a, an arms race where more and more people are going to spend ever more money trying to get data for every subtle little extra edge they can get um, so it's no longer about analysing, which is this is this is what happened in Moneyball you take these uh, traditional statistics like batting average which is a, a, a really misconceived notion unfortunately dating back to a British journalist called Henry Chadwick in the 19th <laughs> century, look him up who misapplied concepts from crickets I'm very embarrassed about this <laughs> But initially, looking for things like value stocks, momentum stocks, and so on, was analogous to what Michael Lewis wrote about in Moneyball. It's taking the stats we can all see and looking at them more cleverly. This now is like using your laser gun and your brilliant cameras to see launch angles and uh, defensive positioning or whatever it's uh, Crunching data on trades, on uh, credit card purchases, on you name it. Analyzing text of every time a CEO speaks in public, or or whatever. Anything that might conceivably get a new edge. Satellite uh, imagery. Yes. Yes. Exactly. See who's see who's still got a lot of cars in their in their warehouse and who hasn't, or, or whatever. And. Um, I don't see how this ends because there is no Theo Epstein of the market to just say, no, we're going to stop doing it that way now. Um So I suspect what you see is that investing will become a game of people investing ever more silly amounts of money in crunching data ever more precisely. And that does, you know, obviously there's concerns about TikTok and, and so on about the lack of privacy these days. I think that probably means that uh, the investment industry will come face to face with uh, people who are worried about about private, privacy and the and uh, the surveillance state.
2: So, I mean, we've had data, high speed trading, all that stuff has been in the market for a while now. I mean, and, AI, yeah. So, is, I guess your contention, John, is you know get used to it because it ain't going anywhere, and in fact, it's going to get become it's more an arms more race. prevalent. I,
5: I, piece i wrote to, uh, just remembered the main point uh, that there was a very interesting piece of research coming out of man numeric showing that factors are decaying that they are not so the value factor or the momentum factor and so on are not working as well as they used to that they have as people have thrown more armory at exploiting anomalies when they can find them those anomalies steadily go away uh and so yes the a lot of this has been around for a long time but we're getting to the point where um you no longer have an edge by doing those things in the same way that billy bean no longer has an edge by looking at on-base percentage uh, and that requires you to pay more money to get ever more data. Mm.
2: john we had uh, some economic data came out today a lot of folks are focusing on inflation these days came in a little bit better than expected a little bit little bit and what's your read john as to how our Federal Reserve will, will will look at this data.
5: Um, I haven't had the chance to go crunching through all of the uh, the angles of it yet. I, 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 at first glance, I don't think it means that they don't hike. Uh, I think the way the market has recovered as swiftly as it has, and that the early signs that that there really isn't so much deposit flight going on suggest that you know, the, 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 uh, the banking crisis really isn't a reason for them to stay their hand, and it's still too far above target for them to seem to change course at this point.
3: Isn't it comforting and, if and, they hike a little? I mean,
5: I felt uh, good it, after it, the it, ECB it, did. Exactly. I mean, well, it, 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 there was a risk. I got criticized for saying this at the time. If, the, if they had not hiked at all or even cut us, some people would have thought that would have been a very clear signal. The Fed is in charge of regulating the banking system, and they obviously think something really bad has just happened. Yes, you know, the, 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 the confidence does have its own self-reinforcing factors, particularly when you're talking about banking. If, if people lose confidence in a bank, it, it, it will lose it will lose all its deposits, even though there's nothing wrong with it. So, I, I think they probably made the right call uh, this month with the 25 bit hike. The market at the moment thinks we'll get another 25 bits, and that will be the end of it. I think that's a reasonable baseline. I'm still nervous about we need more inflation. I'm still nervous about the notion that that rates will be coming down by the end of the year.
2: Hey, John, you you mentioned that you've gained your U.S. citizenship. Uh, Good for you. But I'm guessing you're still an Englishman at heart. May 8th, the coronation of King Charles III. How locked in are you going to be on that or not?
5: I had forgotten that was happening on me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I thought you were going to tell me the FA Cup final was then. Obviously. See, I know. That's, I'm uh, uh, it, it still feels very strange that the, our national anthem has actually changed to God save the king. Uh, <laughs> it's very strange that the barristers who you know, bring prosecutions in court aren't called QC for Queen's Council anymore. They're called KC oh interesting uh, in the sunshine band you know okay. uh, and yeah so uh, it, it, it feels very strange that that, uh, that, right. that, that, that this guy in charge I
2: well I, I suggest yeah, you- just get a nice pint, raise a glass, and, and, and toast your, your new king. Uh, John Author, senior editor for Bloomberg
6: Opinion. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130.
2: Good way to end uh, the week here on an up note. Good way to end uh, a pretty solid. Quarter ending the week, four. ending the month, month, ending the quarter. Exactly right. That's not too bad. Um, again, S and P up nine tenths of one percent. Let's get a sense of kind of what some of these uh, professional folks are doing out there. What kind of advice are they giving to their uh, clients? Anna Hahn, equity strategist at Wells Fargo, uh, joins us, and she was. I'm looking at the part of the Yale. Varsity sailing team. That's pretty cool. Uh, My son was a sailor at Penn State, so that's kind of cool. Those sailing people are a little strange, though, Anna. Uh, Anna, thanks for joining us here. What are you telling your clients here uh, these days after a brutal 2022, but a nice snapback so far in the first quarter?
11: Well, you know, the good thing about being a sailor, you have that spatial awareness. Yes. You're pretty good (laughs) at that big macro picture. And what we're talking to clients about right now is to not be fooled by sort of the head stake we've been getting now you're right in a quarter to date markets are up you're seeing pretty strong rally recently but i think a lot of that's driven by what we've seen a aggressive lowering in yields and the perception of the end of the tightening cycle i think that's premature and a lot of that's going to give back this is the opportunity to reposition the portfolio
3: So uh, do you think that means this is going to be a pivot point for markets as well? The last few days, there didn't seem to be much reason for a rally, and I think a lot of it was window dressing and momentum. Um, Does that change in Q2?
11: No, you bring up a good point about momentum. Part of it was a sort of initial flight to safety. And then another part of it was just the natural mechanics, the window dressing lower yield, growthier uh, stocks, especially, you know, more tech. And you saw the NASDAQ really rally. But that rotation for us is coming in which we think a lot of those trades could be a longer term. We want to see growth in the longer term, but in the immediate term, uh, we're pretty much shedding a lot of that value exposure. We're looking for lower balance sheets. Uh, that's kind of the direction we're going in.
2: Anna, how, how did you and your team at Wells Fargo, um, how are you kind of factoring in uh, some of the turmoil we've seen in the U.S. regional banking space? And then, of course, the the news, which made me idiosyncratic at, over Credit Suisse.
11: So the regional banking fallout that we've seen, we think there could be much bigger ripple effects because what we're talking about here, it's not just a couple banks that had a very uh, peculiar situation. It's interest rate risk. We had the Fed tighten at a extremely aggressive pace almost uh, unprecedented in history and that interest rate risk affects more than just a handful of banks we just haven't seen it all come to light yet on top of that you're already seeing regulations coming down um, so that in com- combination of additional regulation and what could be more uh, problems for banks as they realize their unrealized losses or as we see uh, more difficulty with credit liquidity due to the caution in the financial industry this combined just tightens financial conditions, even if the Fed decides to stop. So that's what we're concerned about here and why we're taking a little more negative view.
3: Well, but the Fed isn't going to stop. Um, at least this next meeting, we still expect them to hike 25 basis points, right? And I also wonder what your take is on the market pricing in cuts by year. And it seems terribly unlikely to me, but it's happening if you look at the WIRP function on the Bloomberg Terminal.
11: Yep, looking at it right now. And you're right, it's happening. But remember, about a year ago, people thought there were going to be cuts mid-year as well, and that had to get priced out. As that got priced out, you saw yields rise again and equities have a difficult time. Uh, I think that's something that we're going to expect again. I think these cuts, you're right, they're premature. And as the market has to reprice that, that kind of turmoil is where we want to be cautious and make sure we're positioned in the right way. But I think longer term, when we talk longer term, right now you've got the 10-year nominal, three half. We think that it can go up to about 360, 3.70. But longer term, it's coming back down. And that longer term trend is how we want to position. That's why we're favoring that long-duration trade.
2: How about valuation here? Um, a lot of folks say, all right, we might get a trade here on you know, a, a pause in, in the Fed. But long-term valuation is still not our friend here. And given maybe some of the, the macro uncertainties out there, how, how are you guys thinking about that?
11: We're being very careful about valuation, very particular. Uh, What we want here is growth at the right price. Now, that sounds cheesy, and it sounds uh, No, I made a
2: lot of money on that back in the day. (laughs)
11: <laughs> right? And it sounds obvious, but right now it's easy to grab for growth because you're fearful of a recession or grab for growth because that's kind of the safety trade that was ingrained in us when we had that nice growth momentum trade pre-pandemic. But what we got to notice now is the better valuations are slightly down the cap. We like especially the mid-cap growth space. You're seeing more friendly valuations. You're still seeing steady growers and you're still seeing clean balance sheets. So this combination is a pretty sweet spot for us, that we think there could be more edge rather than chasing these really big, large-cap growth names that may already be too expensive, uh, in particular um, some of with some of the rally we've seen in the last few weeks.
3: What kind of uh, advice do you give just your average uh, retail investor? Maybe somebody at a bar asked your take <laughs> on a 60-40 portfolio. Is that is that dead or um, is that still uh, something to stick with after you know it was turned on its head last year.
11: You know, I really like that question because when we're talking for the average investor, I don't think that 60/40 is dead. You know, you look at certain deals, you look at the market volatility. Our price target is 4200 on the S&P. We're already at 4085. You know, it's not the most attractive price return there, but I think what i emphasize here is to be lower risk. When you're uncertain and we're not sure the fallout and really the full impact of this uh, regional banking crisis, we're expecting tighter uh, financial conditions and you just have this turmoil. I think as a retail investor, you want to be a little more high quality, lower leverage, you want lower volatility names, and kind of a tighten the book a little bit so you can see where things shake out. Because if things turn out for the better, I think that's something you will have time to reposition into. But for now, the pain point could really be uh, a downturn in the markets. We want to avoid that in particular. You know, No need to get burned in the high-risk names.
2: So and I some of the the big cap tech names that had been the stalwarts for the last decade plus have actually had a really good start to the year here. I think Microsoft, Apple, of course Meta's got its own story on the cost cuts. have they have they gotten ahead of themselves?
11: I think a bit. You know, with these big cap tech names, it's easy to lump them all together. But you look at a lot of it, it's duration risk. And, you know, as you see yields come lower, they can have that nice rally. They also had some tough underperformance from last year. So you're seeing a little bit of that give back. But to us, when we look at big cap tech, it's too uh, much of a lump sum. You know, it's a darling favorites that we see in the headlines. For us, we like to be particular, you know, within tech. If you want to be a little more defensive, I would suggest more leaning towards software, particularly than semis. Uh, Semis has a little more of that cyclical exposure traditionally, but still, it's not that there aren't opportunities in big cap tech. We just think it's a little premature because you're seeing that risk rally here. Um, But really, if you're positioning for a year out, then there are opportunities to be had, but look for that right valuation.
2: All right, Anna, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate getting your perspective. Anna Hahn, she's an equity strategist at Wells Fargo.